me to say this, but um, I'm back up to that announcement. How many of you came to know Jesus under the age of 12? Just raise your hand. Okay, look around there. And that's the way it happens for most people. So in order for that to happen, often it's in the home, and oftentimes it's in Sunday school. And I, I want to put a little bit of pressure on you if you're here today. Uh, one week, two weeks on Summer Serve spells our current year-round workers and um, has kids in view that we want to love kids into the kingdom of God. So would you just think about that? Yeah, some of you are still giving me that cold stare. And uh, uh, this is how lives are changed. We, we love uh, because he loved us, and it would be probably a categorical sacrifice for some of us to do that. But that's the nature of following Jesus sometimes, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you to step into that. And then what we do next Sunday with the grocery bags is a way our community knows that we love them. So uh, there, there are a lot of people with food shortage, and we're going to try to fill that. That's what we do once or twice a year. So uh, this is a great opportunity to step into. You all good with that? Okay. It's about half. I'll take half. <laughs> Can I tell one other leadership piece before we start the, the message this morning? If you look around, you're, you're looking at, um, you know, a, a plus 80% capacity room. And our college students are largely gone now. Not all. Glad you're here. Uh, but a lot of students are gone now for the summer. And that means, as we've been saying, we need to be thinking about two services again. And we've all loved being together in the room. I, I tell you what, I love preaching to the full room. And kind of once, too, because then I, <laughs> I, I, know, I know what I've said, and I don't get confused between first and second service. But God put us here in Boulder for a really strategic purpose. And that is to be his people called out to live for him in the world. And we just think that there probably are a lot of other people who should be here and might be here if there was a lot more space here. So, get where I'm going? Um, <laughs> we, are, we are going to put on our drawing board that by the fall, we're going to move to two services. <laughs> yeah, because I, I know, like, it could get too comfortable in some way, so we're going to do that. Sometime in the fall, the last week of August or the first of September, we're not sure yet. But what we're going to do to groove ourselves for that two-service move is we're going to make a summer move in four weeks. Everybody say June 5th. Say it one more time, June 5th. On June 5th, we are going to move our Sunday morning worship service to 9 a.m. Okay, we're not taking a poll because it's a no-win to take a poll. We know that. But we are moving on June 5th. We're going to go to one service at 9 a.m. So that when the fall comes, we'll go 9 and 
please don't write me an email. I know about, I know, I know um, half of us think that's a great idea and half of us aren't sure, but we're going to do this together because we're going to try to get ready for the fall when God's going to bring another 300 people to hear the message of the gospel. Okay. So what day? June 5th. What time? Nine o'clock. Okay. We're going to have really special attendance on June 5th for 10 o'clock arrivals. Okay. Uh, but that, that's where we're going. That's on mission. That's what we're trying to do. Okay. So uh, get yourself ready for that. And on the last Sunday in May, we're wrapping up the book of James. Then through the summer, when we begin to meet on June 5th at 9 o'clock, we're going to study the unsung heroes of the Bible. And one of the other things that's going to happen is all of the preaching pastors of Calvary have identified the person or two persons that they want to preach about, these heroes of the faith that we don't know as much about. And we're going to spend the summer looking at these exceptionally less known heroes of the faith during the months of summer. And one of the things that's going to happen is that the preachers are going to move around. And one of the blessings of Calvary Bible Church over the years is that you have been a beautifully affirming congregation to see people rise up in this congregation to grow in their ability to teach and preach and be sent out. And so you're going to see some younger preachers, and you're going to love it, aren't you? Yeah, that's what we do. That's what we do. We're, we're, we're growing up, and we think this is the place where we hear from people, um, and that's what we're going to do in the summer. And then when we do go in the fall to two services at 9 and 1030, we're going to study the book of Luke for most of next year and walk with Jesus through the gospel of Luke. So now you know where we're going. Okay. Yeah. All right. But we have more to do in James. And in the book of James today, um, I think the, the way I want to roll into the book of James today is with a cultural problem. But I pray not a problem for most in our church. Most of the world lives as practical atheists with the vision that God may exist, but he has no bearing on my day-to-day -day life. Is there a transcendent being who interacts with humans in life? Most of the world would operate under the assumption that there is no God who does that. Psalm 104, uh, Psalm 10, 4 says, The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This was the psalmist's description of the cultural condition of the world in his day. If there is no God, then there are no moral imperatives other than those we generate for ourselves. 
So culturally approved norms rooted in the triumph of the human experience are what many people, if not most people, live by. When God is absent, mankind makes the rules and the norms for life, and they constantly change, and they constantly devolve. And I think this is something of what we're seeing today in our world. It was true in James's day, and in the text we're looking at today, James actually says two categories of correction to the church, but they are put into the context of the reason I'm saying this is because of the nature of God. What we think about God determines how we live. How we envision God helps us know how to live today. Our view of him determines our life. And so if you never think about God, that will lead to a certain kind of life. James, in our text, chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, appeals to the character of God as the foundation and the incentive for living a kind of life that is fulfilling and God-pleasing. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to James chapter 4 and verse 11. Now, as James has done, James is as if he's grabbing the lapels and saying, hey, I'm talking to you. And he has two corrective instructions, 11 and 12 and 13 to 17. And I'm arguing for you that the basis of his correction to the problem we're going to look at is the character of God first, that God is a law-giving judge, and secondly, that he is an altogether sovereign ruler. And if you know that God is a judge and that he is a sovereign ruler, the implication is that these problems he's addressing will be corrected in the context of his being a judge and a ruler. Now, those are daunting words, that God is a judge. But we know more than that he's a, a judge. He's a merciful God, right? So he's addressing a problem. Let's see what the problem is in verse 11 and 12, where apparently contextually there were problems in the church. Can you imagine that? There were problems with believers together in which they were arguing with each other, and they were running each other down, maybe because they didn't see things exactly the same. Maybe there were social and economic stratas that separated people. We know that's true. Maybe there were political aspirations that were different. Imagine that. Okay, you can. And then he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy 
but who are you to judge your neighbor? It's clear in the context that there were a lot of conflicts in the people who called themselves believers, who are now dispersed abroad, and there was a reputation growing, apparently, in the congregation of believers where they were estranged from each other and they were speaking against each other. I circled in my notes, brother, brother, brother. And it's clear that this is a family matter of people who mutually believe in Jesus as the Savior, but they're not treating each other well. The word to speak against one another is the word in Greek from which we get the word slander. And it means thoughtless, critical, derogatory, untrue speech aimed at someone to harm their reputation or to lessen the esteem of others toward them by the things you say. It's running someone down in a disrespectful way. And James simply says, when you do that, and the other word he uses here is the word judge, which in the Greek means not an evaluation, an assessment, but a condemnation. When you speak against someone, you condemn them. That's the idea. You slander someone, you ruin them. You gossip about someone, you hurt their reputation in the, in the presence of other people. And when you do that, here's the problem. You are speaking against the law of God. You are as if you are setting yourself above the law of God and making yourself the judge. And so verse 12 says, there's only one judge and one lawgiver. And when you condemn or run down or slander or gossip about someone, you are hurting them in a way that sets you above what even God would say. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this text, and in James chapter 2, verse 8, I'll put it on the screen, here's the law that you speak against. If you really fulfill the the royal law, the law of God, the summary of all things in the Bible together. According to all of the scripture, let's read it together. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. That's the royal law. Love God, love neighbor. It was read this morning from Deuteronomy. That's the summary of everything. And if you run someone down or criticize them or throw them under the bus somewhere, you are setting yourself up as the judge over them and not fulfilling the royal law of loving them. Any questions? Like, there it is. And that, is, that seriously is, apparently there was social dysfunction within the church that James was trying to address. Now, we would expect slander, as followers of Christ, from those who don't. The Bible talks about that. Keep your conduct excellent among those who are not believers, so that in the things that they slander you, they may be put to shame because of your exemplary life, First Peter says. We, we sort of expect that. But there's only one lawgiver. And it says, um, in verse 12, if we put that up, uh, who is able to save and destroy... He's able to save and destroy. That's kind of frightening. He's able to save those who rest in Christ as their Savior, and he's able to save his people from their sins. He's able to save them from their failures. He came to seek and to save. He's able to do that. Jesus actually said in Matthew 10, 28, 
Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Those are the words of Jesus, talking about a fear of God, that God is there, that he's real, and that we all will give an account to him. Glad you came to church today. It's better to live in reality if that's really going to happen. The other side of that is he's able to save is in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. There we read, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He's a savior. He's a judge, but he's a savior of broken people who perhaps have lived a whole life running down other people and suddenly come to their senses and says, every time I do that, I show myself to be really arrogant in, in relation to other people, and I need a Savior to forgive me of that. And he's able to save to the uttermost those who slander. Okay, that's the context, that there was a problem of slander. We could just apply the phrase we've heard earlier from James, not so among you, right? We don't want that to be true of us here. And the reason we let that resonate in our soul is because we know that he is a judge. We actually all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each would receive his due in his body with what he has done, whether it's good or bad. We know that every one of us are going to give an account to God, right? You know that? We, we know that's true, but sometimes we live in our life, practically speaking, as if we're totally unaware that God is there and that every word we speak we'll have to give an account for, which is a frightening thing. But thankfully, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him in faith. Everybody said, yeah, amen. And don't slander. That, that's the point that James is making here. And he's making it based on who God is. Now, when we talk about other people in a derogatory way, what, what is the internal sin going on in us? It's our pride, right? We, we think, look down, don't think more highly, Paul said. Let everyone think appropriately of yourself. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. And I think the church could use a lot less judging. I mean, we're going to hold on to the truth and be a little less judgy. And just say, the Lord will take care of it. I, I think that's what James was doing, because in this culture that the church was emerging in the first century, it was a small little work of people who were holding on to Jesus, and, and gossip can ruin a church. Slander can ruin a church. You could take somebody down. All you have to do is look at, you know, this thing called social media can destroy lives. And just not so among you. Why? Because there's only one lawgiver. There's only one. And the law is love. That's, that's how we live, to love. Enough said? The second character of God is that he is a sovereign God. And so he's attacks in verse 13 another probable problem in the church that there was just this sense of presumption. And so he says, come now, like, come on. You who say, 
today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You say amen to that? Yeah, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In my notes, I just circled the things as I broke down that quotation. Today or tomorrow. He's attacking a presumption about our being in control of everything in our lives so that we can map out the future and think, I've got it all under control, where I'm going, what I'm heading, where I'm going to college, what job I'm going to get, what career, how much money I'm going to make, where I'm going to build a house, where I'm going to buy a house, how many kids I'm going to have, 2.5, and then where I'm going to retire. And you, you map it out completely and no place for God. Practical atheist. I'm going to go do this. It's, God tells us to plan, but to plan like this. And the presumption here is tomorrow. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to go to such and such a city. Well, maybe. And I'm going to stay there a year. Okay. Maybe. And I'm going to do this work, unless you get fired. And I'm going to make this much money, maybe. The sense just simply is maybe those things will happen. But to live your life in such a presumptuous way that you're calling all the shots and you're not aware that there is a sovereign God in your life, the, the argument is simply this. Yet you don't know what tomorrow brings. Not on the screen, but Proverbs 27.1 says, Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring. How many of you have made plans in 2019 and 2020 that you thought, I'm all set, I know what I'm doing in 2020, and probably didn't happen, because you don't know what a day brings. That's the point, but it, it's even more intense. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. James is really encouraging. <laughs> but the idea is this. It's, um, it's 30 degrees outside. You step outside your house, and you go, oh. it's gone. Okay. A superlative, hyperbolic illustration that life just goes like that in one perspective. Now, if you're in high school or college, like, is it ever going to end? Or, you know, you, depending where you are, is it ever going to get there? But the, the, the rearview mirror of life is, wow, that went fast. Would you, how many of you would agree with that? It goes fast. And the, the Bible affirms this again and again, for as for man, his days are like the grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, and the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Some of you remember um, my 30th work anniversary here at Calvary. I got many nice notes from you. And I would say, wow, I can't believe that went that fast. One of my hero pastors said that what every pastor should do 
is preach the gospel faithfully, die, and be forgotten. And that, that's, you know, Psalm says, you're, you're going to be like a flower. It's there, it's gone, and the place doesn't remember you anymore. Yeah. Or in another place, Psalm 90, we, we read these words. The years of our life are 70, or if by reason of strength, 80, and yet their span is but toil and trouble. And they're soon gone, and we fly away. So let's read the last line. So, yeah, he teaches us to know how to live in a life that moves way too fast so that we live today in a wise life. Not with presumption, but there is a sovereign ruler who's in our life, and we say something different than that. Such presumption could be a practical kind of way of living as if we don't even imagine God is involved in our life. And when you get to verse 15, you sort of have the other side, but, but you ought to say, verse 15 says. So verse 13 says, come now you who say, and then here's the corollary opposite, but what we ought to say is, if the Lord lives, wills, we will live or do this or that. I grew up with a grandmother who we said, Grammy, are you coming to dinner? Lord willing. She's in the basement, and you know, we're serving dinner shortly. <laughs> are, you, are you coming up for dinner? Lord willing. I'll make it up there, you know. But everything in her life was always, oh, Lord willing. You can go to church and Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. And I, I, I remember that. And I used to, we used to kid with the brothers about that and say it in a mocking way until we grew up more mature like we are today. And now I really think, yeah, what happens tomorrow is if the Lord wills, I'll be back here at work in the morning. Because to not see God's hand in everything is diagnosed here. It's arrogance. It's like, oh, you're, you're the captain of your own destiny. You're the one in charge of everything in your life. It's sort of not so with you. You understand that in some measure, although God gave you the freedom to pick the clothes that you wore to church today and gives you the freedom right now to whether you're paying attention or thinking about what you're doing this afternoon, and you have the opportunity right now to make certain decisions, there is a God who is sovereignly over everything that's happening in our life, whether we acknowledge him in every way or not. And the, to the extent that we don't acknowledge him in the everydayness of our life, the diagnosis of that is arrogance, pride. It's like, you don't need God. You don't need to think that God might be involved in what's going to happen at work tomorrow. And then when it falls apart, you could say, okay, the Lord is aware of what just happened here because he's a sovereign ruler. He knows. He sees. He hears your cry. He is over all. What James is doing is grabbing hold of people who are so presumptuous about their life that they're just going about their business thinking God isn't involved in anything at all, and he's saying, no, what you ought to be saying is, tomorrow I'm going to go to school if the Lord wills, and I'm going to try to do the best I can in my 
career as the Lord wills, and I, I'm going to trust him for the future because I don't know what his will is, but I want to be in it. Because the best place to be in all of life is in the center of the Lord's will. And that sometimes includes the worst of circumstances, humanly speaking. When you find out that your health is not what you thought it was. When your loved one is taken. Being in the center of God's will is the blessed place to be. And I think grooving our hearts and our minds to say, if the Lord wills, this is what we're going to do, is James's way of saying, see God in the presence of your life because he is the sovereign one over all. If you know that's the right thing and you fail to do it, then it's sin. We only need to think about Jesus who said on many occasions, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's all he said. The only thing that nurses my soul is I want to do God's will. And he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And of course you think of him in the garden, and he said, if it's possible, let this terrible thing pass from me. I, I would rather not go to the cross, but not my will, your will. And he taught us to say, be in the will of God. Pray for the will of God. Now, let's clarify it practically because we need to wrap this for a moment. We have said, if you've been at Calvary for years, you'll have heard me say this, but it's really important that everyone perhaps write down a couple things here. We don't know, for example, with absolute certainty, what college you should attend, what job you should take, Sometimes not even who to marry, because the Bible doesn't say, Lucy chapter 1. Which I, uh, but I know I'm in the will of God with Lucy. And the Bible doesn't speak about the everydayness of our life. And so it's really crucial that you, you make a commitment to be in the will of God for the things he has clearly said to you. So here's three of them. Yep, some of you are going for your pen. This would be good. You should have this. Number one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16 and 17. It's not going to be on the screen, but write this down. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17 and 18. You might have it already in your head. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the will of God is? Be a thankful person. Okay, how's that checkbox look for you? I'm thankful. Okay, grumblers are outside the will of God. It. And everything give thanks. This is the will of God for you. Number two, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God for you, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. It's the will of God for you that you be sexually pure unto God. That's a box. Can you check that? I'm in the will of God in my sexual life. Being in the will of God on things that he has said will help you know how to live your life in the areas he has not specifically said. One more. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore do not be foolish. Verse 17. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. It's the will of God to be filled with the Spirit. It's not the will of God to be drunk. Checkbox. That, that's three. And there are others that help illuminate what God has clearly said, this is my will for you in Christ Jesus. And then we want to be in that so that we could say, I want to live in the will of God. And I don't presume to know everything about the future or to chart my path without him in my mind. I want to be in the will of God on the things he has absolutely said to me. And I want to be there because this world is passing away with all of its desires, but the one who does the will of the Lord abides forever. That's what he said. Uh, so much we probably could say about this text that could perhaps be summarized in another familiar text. How do you get yourself into the will of God? I think Paul described it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And he actually, it, it comes to a climax in the end of verse 2, but he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. Remember, God is a judge. But what kind of a judge? You have to know he's a merciful judge. And he's merciful because he already paid the severest penalty against sin in the death of his son so that he can be merciful to us. So I appeal to you by the mercy of God. I'm glad he didn't say by the frightening terror and judgment of God, but by his mercy that he paid it all. The song we sang this morning, he paid it all. So by the mercy of what God has done for you, I appeal to you, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your it's your spiritual and reasonable service. It's the only response you can make if you know that he's the judge and he is sovereign and he sent his son for you. The, the only right response is to say, Jesus, here's my life. I give you my life, my body. See sexual purity up above. Okay? I give you my body. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into the mold that's going around us here, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Like as you give yourself to God and yield yourself to him and let your mind be shaped by his truth, what happens is you can step into life and say, okay, Lord, I don't know for sure that this is the future, but I trust you, and I'm going to this college. 
And if it's not, he'll step in and direct you. But he probably would give you permission to go to this college or that college and be very happy in either place. And the point is, I'm yielded to God, and I want to live in the will of God. It is the best place to be. To be outside the will of God is to invite conflict, confusion, uncertainty, a lack of peace. Don't jeopardize that. Just say, Lord, if this is your will, I want to be in it. I want to live in your will. Here's one last verse I'll close with. I probably skipped a bunch, but here we go. Um, Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 37, verse 4 and 5. We, we gave this to you a couple weeks ago, but here it is again. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's the progress. My, my joy is in Jesus. And then, if I'm delighting in Jesus... I know I'm going to be in the place where he's unveiling his will to me. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act upon it. That's Psalm 37. I want to encourage you to be in the will of God. And let's just take whatever we need to take this morning from don't speak against each other, and don't presume upon the future. Let's live today where we are by faith in the one who is a merciful judge and a sovereign ruler. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the way the word of God speaks and comes to us in our everydayness of life, the real situations we're in, where at times um, our relational issues cause us problems, and we want to hear what James said about living by love and a little less judgment. And thank you that it speaks to us about the present and the future. And many of us have concerns about the future, but we want to live in a way that we say we want to be in your will in this moment and in tomorrow, if you give us tomorrow. So I pray that our hearts will be shaped by the word that we've heard this morning. And I ask you to think of us as we think about you and let our thoughts be about your character as the merciful judge and as the sovereign ruler who's calling us to walk, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, follow me, walk in my steps. That's where we want to be, Lord, walking with you. And I pray for anybody who has not yet yielded their life to Christ, that this might be the day where they would just pursue you, call on you, and find that you are a forgiver, a guide, a savior, the one who went all the way to the cross to do the will of God and was always in the perfect will of God. Lord, that's where we want to be. So by your Holy Spirit, guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.